it might be beautiful to know what would happen in, say, a perfectly just classroom, but that's not the classroom that we're in. And we have to figure out what is ethical to do, given the conditions under which we are working. We need to develop a theory of educational ethics that is really attentive to educational issues, that is attentive to the really concrete challenges that educators face to help educators um, and then also educational policymakers make more ethical decisions in our work. Schools around the nation face a wide range of challenging ethical questions every day. How do we balance the priorities of an individual child with those of the class as a whole, especially when those priorities are in conflict? Do schools have responsibilities to care for a student's needs beyond the academic realm? How do we teach civics in a politically polarized world? Traditional political philosophy is often too abstract to help educators answer these complex real-world questions. In this episode, we meet with Professor Mira Levinson from the Harvard Graduate School of Education to learn more about educational ethics, a field she developed to fill this niche, and its many implications for education during the pandemic and beyond. I'm Sanjana Narayanan. And I'm Caitlin Lee. And this is the Veritas Lab, the podcast where we give you the scoop on the latest research going on at Harvard, straight from the professors themselves. Harvard Graduate School of Education professor Mira Levinson is a political philosopher who works at the intersection of civic education, youth empowerment, racial justice, and educational ethics. Her research combines interdisciplinary scholarship with eight years of experience teaching in the Atlanta and Boston public schools. She has written several books on civic education, ethical dilemmas, and systemic inequities in the education system. In recent months, she has authored papers on applying educational ethics to the problem of school reopening and remote learning during the pandemic. Professor Levinson, your work is so important, as the pandemic has reminded us again and again, and we're thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Thanks for having me. We wanted to start off by asking about how your experiences as a public school teacher shaped your current field of study. What realizations about the state of education did you have while working in classrooms and schools on the day-to-day? My experience as a school teacher definitely infuses basically everything that I do and is the reason that I kind of do the work that I do. So my interest in educational ethics, well, in part came out of the fact I'm trained as a political theorist. Uh, I'm therefore predisposed to be interested in ethics. I went into political theory in part because I was interested in ethical questions. But I actually did my doctorate in political theory before I became a school teacher. And what I really quickly discovered as a teacher was that the kind of purity of the ethical theories um, and the political theories that one studies in, you know, the academy or whatever, it's not probably correct to say it was as much of a hindrance as a help, but it certainly did not provide answers to the questions and the dilemmas that I was facing um, as a teacher. And that was true for a few reasons. First of all, Ethical theories sort of developed, you know, in theory, like rather than kind of in the wild of our actual, you know, behavior are by design really pure and consistent. And they say, you know, there are different ways to take, to think about a problem. We think you should think about a problem with this vantage point, right? Like, you know, either you should figure out what the utilities are and then engage in a, you know, utility maximizing approach, or you should think about what 
what rights people have and what duties people have and, you know, how you should fulfill those or you think you think about what a virtuous person would do or, you know, whatever. Right. Like these are three really kind of pure flavors of how you approach ethical problems. But when we're actually acting out in the world, I think we rightly take pieces of all of those things. Right. Like it would be wrong to totally ignore questions of utility. It would also be wrong to ignore questions of rights and duties. And it would be wrong to kind of ignore the question of like, what would a good person do here? Right. Like, and so we're always mixing things up, I think, in our, in our, uh, real work. And so in part, I discovered that I couldn't really use the theories I had been studying to help me figure out what actions I should take as a uh, school teacher because it was all this really mixed stuff. Right. So these pure philosophical aims aren't directly applicable in a messier real world classroom setting. I, I may know kind of in theory, like how I should think about an individual versus a group. But now what do I do when I have like a kid who's busy, like banging the table and making it hard for the other kids to learn? But in part, he's doing that because it's a stress release for him. If he does that, that will help him focus. So he's doing his best right to to learn and to be part of the class he's also making it really hard for other people to do their best and to learn and to be part of the class that's super complicated it's com it, it brings in questions about the relationship between the kid and the teacher what kind of model the teacher is supposed to be about how we relate to one another there are questions about like the distribution of learning in the class there's questions about what do we care about? Like, should we care about the fact that he's sort of engaged in this really pretty good, like social, emotional and uh, kind of executive function action to keep himself under control? Or, uh, or should we be focusing on teaching kids that they don't get to distract and disturb others? Like, should I care more about the academics? Should I care more about like the personal self-regulation? Should I care more about creating a sense of community? Like all of that, again, is super complicated and messy and no theory is going to give us answers for it. I see. So there's this really significant gap between traditional political theory and its utility in context of education. Uh, generally, uh, political theories have been developed in recent centuries to be about like, how do we create the sort of the perfect, you know, arrangement of power, right? Like the perfectly just state or something. And like, what would that look like? And that's really great to know. There are lots of reasons that we may want that answer. It really, though, doesn't help in many ways when we are in a classroom where we have kids uh, at, where everything is infused with injustice, right? Like everything that we're doing, you know, um, is infused with uh, the like, you know, the historical tentacles of like white supremacy and xenophobia and class injustice and the fact that I there should be fewer kids in my classroom and I should be better trained. But neither of those things are true because I'm teaching in an urban public school. It might be beautiful to know what would happen in, say, a perfectly just classroom, but that's not the classroom that we're in. And we have to figure out what is ethical to do, given the conditions under which we are working. We need to develop a theory of educational ethics that that is really attentive to educational issues 
that is attentive to the really concrete challenges that educators face to help educators um, and then also educational policymakers make more ethical decisions in our work. That's super interesting. It seems like educational ethics strikes a balance between theory and practice that has really been missing from the field of education for a long time. What impact are you hoping this framework will have? So educational ethics is this field that I'm trying to help get underway, modeled in some ways after bioethics, where I'm hoping that it will have sort of clinical implications, again, to you know, borrow the language of bioethics, so that, say, teachers, school principals, guidance counselors, family liaison specialists, school boards, whatever, uh, you know, would be able to turn to educational ethics and to educational ethicists for help uh, in thinking through complex uh, issues that they face, that it would also have a policy uh, facing approach and where, say, when policies are being developed and, you know, you're bringing together stakeholders of various kinds, educational ethicists would be in that mix along with parents, superintendents, business leaders, teachers, students, whatever. And that also would have a research component, right? A theory development uh, component. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned that it's often difficult to apply these ethical theories in practice, but you actually lead an initiative called Justice in Schools, which aims to do just that, to help educators and policymakers deal with ethical dilemmas in real life. So can you give us some background behind Justice in Schools and what it does? Um, so the Justice in Schools website uh, is designed to make the tools and concepts of educational ethics available to people in the field, educational policymakers, school board members, uh, school superintendents and district leaders, principals, teachers, other school personnel and students themselves. One of the primary ways in which we try to make these materials accessible and useful is by um, posting what we call normative case studies. So uh, normative means value laden, right? They're about values and not just about, um, say, how the world is, but it's about sort of how we think the world should be. And so these are fairly short case studies, usually about four or five pages, um, often narrative in form, uh, sometimes fictional, sometimes not, uh, that try to take a pretty um, common ethical dilemma in education, but to give it a sort of concrete instantiation, um, because I, it is, again, when we uh, face these ethical questions in a really concrete form, that I think we're most likely to uh, grapple with the complex range of values and principles that we feel committed to, but that may not all be realizable, you know, simultaneously in practice. And it also makes us uh, better able to grapple with the range of ways in which we might interpret the same principle or value, like equality or democracy or transparency or accountability in a particular case. One of our most popular cases is one about a parent who calls a school principal saying, look, this kid uh, sent a threatening meme to my daughter and I, you know, want you to discipline him. Uh, and 
it's quite clear that the meme is kind of so over the top that it's not legitimately threatening in some ways, but it is an expression on his part of anger, but also through, you know, sort of some misbegotten humor. And so there, there's some questions about sort of adults versus kids interpretations about how far this, the power of the school should reach. Should it reach into the home? Should it reach out beyond the school day, beyond you know, the school's Wi-Fi network, et cetera. We have these cases uh, available to enable people to have conversations with one another about these complex ethical dilemmas, um, to come to recognize that people who may have different views about them likely are not, you know, bad people, are not immoral. It's not that they hate kids or they're captured by the teachers unions or all they care about is, you know, uh, advancing the neoliberal agenda or whatever. Like, you know, there's so many kind of accusations that we uh, that often get thrust at the other side in questions about educational practice and policy. And uh, my view is that most of us in education really are trying to do the very best we can for students and often for teachers and you know school systems but what we think that is and how we interpret that really varies and if we can help give people a, a means through which to explore and clarify and make sense of and perhaps revise their own principles and values and to hear others' accounts of their principles and values and come to understand where there are points of consensus, um, uh, what principle, you know, how they might actually rank their values or how those they think those play out in particular contexts, given particular histories, etc. that that can be a really helpful way to advance uh, conversations about educational ethics more broadly among people in education. We want to stay with the idea of educational ethics, but specifically ask about how it can be applied to the challenges presented during the pandemic, from reopening schools to resource allocation. Since you've thought deeply about how to implement what you call pandemic-resilient teaching, what would you say are the key ethical questions at this time? Yeah, that's a great question. So. I think one of the key ethical questions that we are seeing is about the interests and needs of children versus the interests and needs of adults. Now, I don't think that these have to be in as much tension as they are right now. It is in part only because, especially in the United States, we've pursued such horrifically, well, it's not that we've pursued horrifically bad federal policy. We've had no federal policy and, you know, states have been all over the map and we just don't have, you know, a, a true commitment to children or to teachers uh, in terms of our uh, pandemic policy. But because of that, what uh, one of the big challenges really is thinking about what do kids need and what would bring them value and what is their risk level and so forth. And then what do teachers need and what is their risk level and uh, what will be good for them? And those are in greater tension right now. Yeah, it's been frustrating watching schools around the U.S. grapple with really tough trade-offs between protecting people's health, but also preserving children's education. 
A second big dilemma is around whose choices matter uh, and get elevated and how we take account of the ways in which historical and systemic injustice are shaping families' choices right now around education. So it's quite clear that actually pretty much since the beginning, but certainly this school year, like starting since this August, that families with greater levels of privilege feel more confident and about and committed to sending their children back to in-person schooling than families who have been historically marginalized in various ways. That is, I think, a logical choice by both groups. You know, say if you are a low-income family of color uh, in a sort of historically uh, disenfranchised community, you are likely to have had fairly mistrustful relationships with your um, school or your school district and, you know, with public institutions. You don't feel as if they're likely to listen to you uh, uh, and you don't trust them and they're unlikely to be trusting you either, right? Uh, the building facilities are likely to be worse. The level of resources to make sure that you have um, safe, healthy buildings uh, that uh, are going to be healthy pe places to send your kid. It's That's just less likely than in other places. Uh, you are more at risk if you do get sick. It may be that there are higher levels of community transmission. It may be that more of the kids who are going to your kid's school are children of um, unprotected essential workers. They may be taking public transportation, right? So the Again, the risk of their becoming infected and their being infectious is higher, and you have worse health outcomes, uh, you know, on average, if you do get infected, and you may have lower levels of um, health insurance, and you may have less of a financial cushion to fall back on if you end up, say, having to quarantine for weeks on end or, to, say, take care of somebody who is sick. So for all of those reasons, it's perfectly rational for you to say, I don't trust that you're going to keep my kid or my family safe. And so I am not going to send my kid back to school. But then what we end up with is this incredibly unequal set of outcomes where you have the most historically privileged kids going to in-person school at much higher rates than the most historically marginalized kids are going to school. And it is very, very clear that in-person schooling is better for kids than Zoom school, right? Um, and so you get this, you know, further exacerbation of privilege, even though everybody may be doing, you know, something that's that makes total sense. And so then you have the kinds of questions that districts face. Um, where they have to decide, are we going to commit to a more full reopening while still giving parents choices if we know that those choices are going to further exacerbate uh, inequality? Or are we going to say stay closed even though we don't have to? And it would clearly be better for kids we serve if we were open. And this is a long-standing problem. It's not unique to the pandemic. It's just that the pandemic has forced us to realize how serious these inequalities have always been. 
Are there any other ethical challenges in education that the pandemic has brought to the forefront? The third one that I'll just raise is one about what the aims of education are, right? Like during the spring, districts and schools were pretty clear for the most part that they just were not going to go for the academics. Like that what really mattered to them was feeding kids and then attending to their um, emotional and social and mental health, which seemed right. But this year, districts have basically said, well, we can't have that be our, you know, overall aim and curriculum for the year. Like, you know, we're about academic learning. And there's some really good reasons to be about academic learning. But it's also the case that the same, many of the same conditions apply now as applied in the spring that led the schools to be focused on social, emotional, well-being, mental health, et cetera. And so, you know, how much effort uh, schools and districts and states and so forth should be putting into um, academic progress, social, emotional well-being, mental health, physical health for kids, special needs services, et cetera, I think is another huge ethical dilemma that we're facing right now. So following up on the last two points you mentioned, how can the inequities and responsibilities of schools beyond academics be addressed in concrete ways right now? Is it about, you know, building up more services around emotional care and physical health? Is it about establishing trust within these marginalized communities? Yeah, that's a great question. I think fundamentally, it really is about, um, frankly, more resources. We need school nurses. We need school counselors. We need social workers. We need family liaisons. Um, and we didn't have enough of those beforehand. And we definitely don't have enough of those now. Um, and so in part, uh, really massively investing in uh, trained, caring professionals who know how to support kids and families uh, to get the support they need in order to thrive is huge. Um, also, frankly, there is a bunch of policy outside of schools that would make a huge difference, right? Things like if Congress would ever pass and a president would sign a new, you know, uh, stimulus bill that would actually expand unemployment insurance that would make it possible for, um, you know, families to stay home with uh, kids or, you know, relatives, family members who, who need support, right? Like, uh, if they would continue the eviction moratorium, like, you know, all of this stuff, right, that is creating so much trauma for families uh, and for kids, like, that would make a huge difference in the classroom as well. Um, things like relationships of trust are really long-term things, right, challenges that need to be uh, built up. Those aren't going to be built up in, you know, the next six months, or they're, they're not going to be achieved, but they, we could certainly make some progress, including in having real collective work together. But that's a years long task. But I think one of the most crucial tasks that we face, because we can't have good schools for communities if we don't have relationships of trust. We also wanted to pivot to another subject that you've written a lot about in your books like Making Civics Count and No Citizen Left Behind. 
you suggested that we really need to rethink civic education in this country. Where is the education system currently failing when it comes to civic engagement? So schools are right now stuck in a really hard place that frankly I am hoping they will be able to come out of in the next year or two, but it really depends on whether our country comes out of it in the next year or two, which is that public schools, I'll say, you know, publicly funded schools that are arms of the government are rightly tasked with being places that are nonpartisan, that are places for the free expression of diverse viewpoints in all sorts of ways. At the same time, they're places that are rightly supposed to teach democracy, right, and teach democratic and civic norms. Over the past few years, we have been in a really tough place where there is immense disagreement over really fundamental democratic principles and norms and where it's also extremely hard for schools to figure out what it means to be nonpartisan. Right, because especially one of the political parties, the Republican Party, has really been changing its stances as Trump has changed, you know, has asserted different positions. Suddenly the Republican Party, right, is no longer the party of free enterprise, open markets, right, you know, open economic borders. It becomes the party of protectionism and tariffs, right? Um, like, that's not what the Republican Party has historically stood for. In the past, it was pretty easy to know, okay, here's the basic Democratic Party platform, here's the basic Republican Party platform. Like, you know, I, I know how to represent a variety of viewpoints in there. That's no longer so easy because it's very hard to know where the Republicans are. The Democrats have been shifting too, but, you know, far less radically or unpredictably. And there's really fundamental disagreement among people about even what the boundary lines are, right? Like, what is, um, like, what is an acceptable array of positions and what is just, you know, simply anti-democratic? What's authoritarian or fascist or, um, you know, anarchist or whatever, right? And so when, as a teacher, you're trying to help students engage in really meaty questions and topics, but you run the risk that they themselves or their parents or your principal or your department chair or a school board member or whatever is going to come back after you and say, you know, you were teaching falsehoods, you are teaching something that's anti-American, you're, you know, whatever. And you're thinking, wait, what? <laughs> that? Um, right. Uh, then that makes it super hard to engage in high quality civic education. Right. So there's this macro question of, how do we even teach civics when the political landscape is changing so much and there might not even be consensus on what is nonpartisan? The other huge challenge in civic education right now is that civic education in this country has for the past few decades really been treated as something that you learn about rather than something that you learn to do. And in that respect, it's really different from almost everything else that we teach in schools. When we have kids take English, um, you know, uh, what we're doing is we're hoping that they will not only learn how other people write or how other people read, but they will themselves become readers and become writers. And right, they get a lot of time practicing reading and writing and speaking and communicating and so forth, because that's actually what we think it's about. It's about teaching students to do 
the enterprise, not just to learn about how other people do the enterprise. Bizarrely, when it comes to civic education in this country, we mostly spend our time teaching children how other people do civics. Um, and that makes no sense educationally. It makes no sense, you know, like it's, it's not clear why we would want to have kids learn solely how other people do citizenship. Like we want them to learn to be good citizens, right? And citizens in a really broad sense of the term of like, you know, rights holders, duties hold, duty holders within the United States when they're living here, regardless of their legal status, because everybody has both rights and duties, uh, you know, when they're here. And so it seems really bizarre not to have them actually do learn to do that, <laughs> um, to develop the skills and the dispositions and the practices to do citizenship well. But because we haven't had that tradition of education, of civic education in the last few decades, that's another place that we're really falling down. Now there's movement in this direction. Massachusetts now requires um, kids, uh, schools to enable kids in both middle school and high school to um, do an action civics project, to identify a problem that they care about, to do research about it, to try to formulate a way to address it, to actually do that work. That's great. Um, there in Chicago, Chicago has become amazing at integrating uh, active civil learning and, and action civics into the work they do in the Chicago public schools. There are good initiatives in Illinois as a whole. Uh, California has the Democracy Schools Initiative. Florida has a greater commitment to civic education than they used to. So there's there are, you know, sort of points of light around and about. But we still have a really, really, really long way to go. I think that note of both humility and optimism is just what we need right now for education and to get through this pandemic in general. Thank you so much, Professor Levinson, for your perspective on educational ethics and justice in education. And we really hope that the challenges of 2020 will encourage our school system to grow and change. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Veritas Lab. We're your hosts, Sanjana and Caitlin, and we'll see you next time.